going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Another wide-ranging show today. It all started with talk about economics and taxes around the Calgary 2026 bid. We sit down with the sister-in-law of a young woman murdered in Oak Tokes nearly 28 years ago as her killer has been granted full parole. And we have some fun to mark one month until the world-famous Pledge Day here on 770 CHQR. Welcome to the Calgary Today podcast. As mentioned... Yesterday and throughout the course of the last couple of weeks, one of the things that I want to get across is sort of a breakdown of the different issues surrounding the possible bid for the 2026 Calgary Games. Now, yesterday we focused in on infrastructure and a lot of great comments about sort of putting it all into perspective. And so what I wanted to do today is focus specifically on taxes. It seems to be one of the hot button topics when it comes to this bid is can we afford it? Should we try to afford it? What's it going to mean to me at the end of the day? And so to answer some of those questions, we bring in a University of Calgary associate professor in the School of Economics, Trevor Toome. Trevor, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Great to be here. The biggest question I think that gets asked when we're talking about the Olympics happens to be around taxes and how we can't afford it or we don't want to burden the taxpayer anymore. When you look sort of across the board here, maybe we'll start municipally. How would the Olympics affect our tax rate, if at all? So that's a, that's a great question. It's hard to answer with any precision today because it will depend on how future city councils decide how to fund the $390 million contribution that we're looking at today. Uh, but, but let's assume for a minute that that number sticks, that it doesn't change in the future, and that it's funded through an increase in city debt levels. So right. that would then translate into our property taxes because of the interest costs associated with that debt and repaying the debt over, say, 20, 25 years. Under that scenario, it would increase property tax rates by about one to one and a half percent. So that's different for different people, but for the median uh, residential property homeowner, that's about 25 bucks a year, although substantially more for non-residential property holders, businesses, and so on. I was going to say that and that's per year, essentially over the the eight years sort of between now and, and 2016 or 2026, right. pardon me. That's right. Okay. That's right. In terms of the, the provincial takeaway from it, $700 million, where would that money come from? How could that be allocated and what would the Alberta tax base face? Yeah, so this depends again on how governments decide on how to fund that $700 million. It looks like right now, given where the provincial budget situation is, you know, they face budget constraints given low price of oil, pipeline constraints, things like that. The deficits aren't going away on their own. Uh, the government has already restricted the amount of funding it's going to be making available for capital projects and infrastructure projects. So relative to last year, they shrank by a little over $5 billion, the amount they're planning to spend on capital this year, next, and 2020. So it looks like the $700 million for the Olympics would just be a reallocation away from other projects. And so it'd be contributing to the construction of various sports venues, for example, rather than other items on the unfunded capital list. Uh, such as 
schools, roads, things like that. Gotcha. And from the federal take, this is always an interesting one because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people think it's just coming out of the, the, the main bank account in a sense. But from what I understand, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, is the money that's coming from the feds is already allocated for Sport Canada. Yeah, so there is kind of a long-standing policy federally of every uh, decade or so funding something on this scale. So it doesn't necessarily need to be the Olympics, you know, the Commonwealth Games, uh, the FIFA is coming to North America as well. So there, there's funding from the federal government to contribute up to half of public sector contributions to these major events. Uh, so, so I don't see this also as affecting federal tax rates in any real way, since it would just be a reallocation if not spent here, then spent elsewhere. Now, now that being said, the federal government could run a, a lower deficit than it is currently planning to run, for example. So it's not as though governments are required somehow constitutionally to, to fund these projects. But it's, it doesn't represent a change in policy. It's simply funding that's available, that's kind of typically available uh, across governments and over time, that would be earmarked to Calgary instead of something else. It sounds to me, and and this goes for all three levels of government, is that it really does depend on how they each level of government sort of moves the dollar figures around and and changes the allocations and changes where their their budgetary uh, priorities are, I guess, in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, and and based on what we know right now, I think it's a safe bet this doesn't affect federal taxes or or plan changes in taxes in the future, and it probably doesn't affect provincial ones either. That's not to say there's not a trade-off, because it is using public funds in a particular way that could have been used in other ways, not just funding other capital projects, but potentially uh, shrinking the deficits, either uh, provincially or federally, or reducing taxes below what they would have otherwise have been. But the, the real impact for Calgarians is, I think, going to be most visible in terms of property tax changes. Um, and, and that will depend on how things shake out. We see even now some discussion, let's put it that way, between the city and the feds about who is going to be on the hook for potential security cost overruns, for example. Some notion that the feds wouldn't be the ones that contribute, which seems odd. Um, and if that lands on the municipal government, then that would mean a a larger increase in property taxes than we see. The question that everybody seems to be raising is, or even the statement that's being said is, we can't afford this. So I'm going to ask you the question, do you think we can afford this? Oh, absolutely. There's no constraint that prevents us from hosting the Olympics and putting it on. It's about choices. There are trade-offs involved. I think that's where the real discussion here is going to be. What are the capital projects that we're going to prioritize? What are the um, things that the provincial government should be focused on? And reasonable people will disagree. I think there's there's a lot of non-economic, very intangible gains from hosting the games. And if uh, some folks think that that's worth the cost, that's that's great. It's it's not like we're in a situation where we couldn't put on the games if we wanted to. We absolutely can, but there there still are trade-offs. You know, one to one and a half percent increase in Calgary property taxes and potentially less provincial funding for other capital projects. And on the flip side, if council, say, wanted to make it a sort of a, a tax-neutral move, they would just have to take money from other projects. And I don't see that there's a lot of scope for that. I mean, the amount of dollars that are 
able to be uh, reallocated within the city is pretty tightly constrained. So think about the green line here. Mm. This is the city participating in in a large project that also involves the provincial and federal governments, for example. So this is typically how these kind of infrastructure projects go. And so it's not like Calgary could just in the future decide to contribute less, uh, which would put the whole project in jeopardy. So the ability of the city to find spending reductions by an amount that would add up to their planned Olympic contributions, I think that would be a pretty tall order. One question that's also been raised around this is that $20 million insurance policy for security overruns to the tune of $200 million or however the dollar figures amount there. Is that a wise or savvy move by the city or by the, the Bidco? Well, that's that's really interesting question, and I'm not sure I have a good answer for it. I mean, on the one hand, insurance is um, typically something sensible to have. If cost overruns are below $200 million for the city, then the insurance uh, provider would be the one to pick up that tab. So there might be a case to be made there. We should also keep in mind this was kind of a clever way that the big corporation came up with to get the federal government to contribute more than half the provincial dollars without actually saying they're contributing more than half the dollars because the feds are going to be matching the value of the insurance contract in terms of their cash contributions. Right. So they're matching on 200 rather than 20. So it's some kind of interesting accounting going on there. Um, so I think that was the primary motivation for that move rather than the merits of the insurance contract itself. So speaking of those interesting accounting principles, we're going to get to that in just a second, Trevor. Hang on the line for a second. Trevor Toome is our guest, associate professor at the UFC's Department of Economics, and we'll be back with Trevor Toome in just a second. Trevor Toome is our guest, associate professor at the University of Calgary's Department of Economics. Trevor, we've talked a lot about fancy accounting and those kinds of issues being tossed around there. When you look at the numbers as they've they've been presented, do they make economic sense? So I think the way Calgarians should approach this question is to look just at the costs, at the 390 municipal dollars, the, the 700 million provincial dollars, and the 1.4 billion federal dollars, and think about whether or not hosting the games are worth those costs. And, and that's a legitimate conversation where different people are going to have different perspectives on it. The claims that really... Uh, aren't based on a lot of good evidence or analysis are claims, uh, some by the big corporation, others by um, some municipal politicians, that each dollar we put in, we get $10 back. Uh, or that we're in line to have employment increases of 15,000 jobs and a billion dollars in additional labor income from hosting the games. These claims dramatically overstate the real economic benefit of hosting the games, and they double and sometimes triple count the dollars that are flowing into the city or ignore the fact that a lot of the Olympic spending is not actually going to stay in Calgary or go to Calgarians. So I would encourage everyone to reject claims around the 10 to 1 return uh, or that we're in line for a big boost in the pace of our economic recovery. I think the Olympics are not really primarily an economic decision. Uh, We should look at it as 
uh, a way to increase community spirits, promote sports, national pride, and so on, and ask ourselves whether that's worth the cost, and then reasonable people can disagree. I'm curious to that point, when it comes to the build-up to the games, and let's say Calgary does win the bid and goes forward with some of the construction and that kind of thing, and, and one of the things that I've likened it to, I'm not saying that it is an economic stimulus package, but is there an element of that in possibly going forward with a big project like the Olympics, where well, it's a bit of a, a, a stimulus for an economy that's having a bit of a struggle? That is a very important question, and that depends on how the province approaches the funding for the games, for example. If the dollars are being reallocated away from other capital projects, then it's not an incremental increase in the amount of government spending within the city or within the province, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't look like, given the provincial budget situation, it doesn't look like these will be incremental dollars because they do face a very significant infrastructure budget constraint. I also think that the nature of Alberta's economic recovery is broadly misunderstood. Certainly no recoveries are as quick as we would like, uh, no doubt. But the recovery is going on. And where the recovery is having the most difficulty is uh, really concentrated among young men, lower education young men in particular. This accounts for the bulk of the employment gap that we need to recover to get back to where we were in 2014. And a lot of that is because laborer jobs in oil and gas construction and manufacturing are are not uh, really returning given the depressed right. investments in oil and gas. And I don't see how the Olympics are going to be of any help to those unemployed Calgarians. Certainly in the near term, it's going to be years before any of these projects get off the ground. And there's every reason to expect our recovery will um, continue and by the early part of the 2020s be complete. Uh, although, of course... Uh, unpredictable things can happen, but this is this is not going to be some silver bullet uh, or sorry magic bullet for the Calgary economy. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely, it's an interesting discussion and one that I'm glad that you were able to give us a little bit more insight on, Trevor. I appreciate the time today. My pleasure, anytime. January twenty third, nineteen ninety one, is a date that will never be forgotten in Oak Tokes. Sixteen year old Stephanie Spooner was murdered in her home. And it's been nearly 28 years now. And one of the things as the news director over the last couple of years, uh, one of the projects that I've undertaken was getting us up to speed on our parole board documentation and getting all the details of cases from the last 30, 35, 40, even 50 years ago, finding out about different cases. And this was one that I've been following very closely on. Last month, I believe uh, Robin Spooner was on with Danielle Smith and talking about ahead of a parole board hearing for Tristan Ryan, formerly known as Bradley Page, the man who killed Stephanie Spooner. That hearing was held and Mr. Ryan was granted full parole. Much to the disappointment of the family, And I've been able to stay in contact with Robin Spooner over the last couple of years and wanted to bring her on the program to talk about the family's response to the decision and what they've gone through over the last 28 years, in particular the last couple of years, having to relive everything that's gone on. Uh, Robin, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. 
I guess give me your first initial reaction as you were sitting in the hearing room and, and understanding what Mr. Ryan was going to be granted. You know, first off, these hearings are very surreal. They're very, um, they're very hard emotionally um, to sit, you know, within just feet away of, you know, the person that killed your loved one. They're not an easy thing to attend. Um, so going into it, I had attended um, his day parole hearing last July. Um, so I knew what I was getting myself into, unfortunately, with these hearings. Mm-hmm. Does it make it any easier, I guess, in a sense, knowing that, not to say that it, it's set in stone, that once you get day parole, it's only a matter of time, but at the same time, the this sort of, as you read through all the documentation, there there certainly seemed to be a hint of, this is the path that he's going down. Yeah, I went into this fully expecting them to grant him day parole, um, or sorry, full full parole. Mm -hmm. It was pretty clear, like you said, you know, this was the path that the um, parole board wanted to take. What is hard for us is they say that victims have involvement. Um, They encourage us to write victim impact statements. They encourage us, if we want to, to read our victim impact statements in these hearings. But what I am learning more and more so is it doesn't matter. Our rights as victims are over. And what we think, what we feel, uh, does not take, um, the parole board doesn't take into consideration. It's all about him, his rehabilitation, um, and that's pretty much it. I've talked to some people who have kind of, I, I guess, made peace with the past in a sense and, and have said, you know, I understand the processes and and they've done, it appears that the, the person who was responsible made all the steps necessary. and They were kind of at peace with the, with the decision process as much as it still hurt. Is it fair to say that you're not there? No, and quite honestly, we will never be there. Um, the reasoning for us is we don't feel he's remorseful. Um, he's proven multiple times that in things that he has said um, and in some of his actions over the years, I don't think he's sorry for what he's done. I think everything he says now is, um, it seems very scripted, very much pre-thought out as far as his responses to the parole board. And because of all the, um, I guess, mistakes, if you want to call it, um, that have happened over the course of his incarceration, um, the scripts that have occurred, um, the privileges that he's been allowed when he shouldn't have, we are not at peace. Is there anything to be said for what doctors have said and and i know during these hearings there's always different uh health professionals that are brought in and uh you know corrections canada comes in and and they all do the presentations does that give you any peace of mind at all not really um i if he were to reoffend, it would be in a very personal situation um, that's very clear so unfortunately if he were to reoffend, it would probably be against his now current wife for us is we want to be able to live our lives as normal as possible. And the parole board has the ability to put restrictions in place 
to grant us that. And they have chosen once again to not do that. And if you reoffend, back on them. 27 years ago, um, obviously time doesn't heal all wounds by any stretch. When you look back on Stephanie's life, uh, what do you still, what still stays close to your heart? I get to hear the stories um, from my in-laws, from my husband about Stephanie. I never had the chance to meet Stephanie. She passed away a few years before I met my husband. Okay. And, but she was, she was somebody that everybody wanted to be. Everybody wanted to be Stephanie's friend. Um, she had a massively kind heart and a kind soul. She would be fighting, you know, if this was any one of her friends or family members that had this happen to them, she would be there 27 years later fighting for them. So that's what we will continue to do for Stephanie. What would you like the average Albertan, average Calgarian who's listening to the program now, what would you like them to take away from what your family's had to deal with through the the processes of hearing about, you know, escorted passes and then day parole and now full parole and and having to face the the past over and over and over again. We need change. And as a society, we need to step up and we need to speak out because we are living in a country with an extremely flawed system. Um if things had gone the way they should have, if judges had taken notice and read reports as they should have in the beginning, Stephanie would still be alive today. We have to give all of our information. You know, we have to plead our case to the parole board. We have to sit down and write, you know, extremely difficult emotional victim impact statements. He gets access to everything. He has to read everything in advance yet we still get very, very limited information, and we need that to change. Robin, uh, thank you so much for sharing you and your family's story, as tough as it is to tell. Thanks for having me. Hard to believe we are one month away from the greatest day in Calgary radio history every single year. Betty Jo Kaiser, Calgary Children's Foundation. How are you, my dear? I'm fantastic. And do I ever love that intro? It's so true. <laughs> I love it. And this is the first year that I actually get to be a host of it. I didn't, usually I'm just the, the intrepid reporter asking questions. But it's not about me. It's about the kids at the end of the day. And how excited are you to be a month away from Pledge Day 2018? Uh, Joe, it is going to be fantastic. Now, like previous years, we're going to have our charities lined up. We're going to have a bunch of donors that we have scheduled to come on and and uh, share a nice little juicy check with us. But the best thing about the day is that the whole community comes together. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely love this. We don't talk politics. We don't talk news of the day. We put all of that stuff on hold. I mean, you could still get the news at the top of the yeah. hour. Yeah. We'll still tell you what we the weather is. We have a responsibility is. to do, but yeah. you know. But we're not, Danielle's not going to come on and, and be talking politics. Danielle's going to be on talking to people in our community. They're helping to improve the lives of kids. And I'm so excited you're going to be hosting this year. <laughs> it's going to be great, Joe. The best part about it for me is... I shouldn't even say the best part. The crazy part about it is, for whatever reason, every year there's a moment where you get the little tear in your eye. 
or there's there's dust in the room or somebody's cutting onions. But it's it's cool that way is we finally get to put some of the faces to the charities that we're helping out as well. So here's the thing with the Calgary Children's Foundation. It's our goal to try and catch those kids that are falling through the cracks. And how we do that is by identifying the small children's charities, the grassroots groups not a lot of people know about. Most of our charities do not have budgets for sophisticated communications or big fat fundraisers. They just don't. They have identified a need in the community and they go after it. And they need a few dollars. 5000 here, 10000 there. You cannot imagine what that kind of money does to improve the lives of kids. And the other thing that I love about it, a lot of these stories are hard to tell. Yeah, mm-hmm. they pull on the heartstrings and they, they make you, you tear up. But it, it takes a few minutes to really hear about a kid's diagnosis or to hear about a program for kids at risk. And it's so nice to be able to have the airwaves to do that and to really tell the story of how this one kiddo, his or her life can be completely turned around by these programs that are that are brought up from the grassroots and they are helping kids across the spectrum reach their full potential. And it's funny how it's not necessarily just health, but it's even simple stuff. Like I love brown bagging it for kids. I can't, like those kinds of charities that are giving experiences or day to day. Or I like kids up front. It's another great one where it's like, hey, here's some tickets. Go see a game that they normally wouldn't get to go see or a concert that they wouldn't normally get to see. So again, it goes back to that awareness factor. For, and that's the big thing for a lot of these charities. Exactly. A lot of them wouldn't have a chance to tell their full story. And you're right. We hit, we're hitting all kinds of different areas. We do the basic needs. Kids need food, clothing, and shelter. That is what they need just to survive. Brown bagging it, perfect. They feed their kids lunch. In From the Cold, now In From the Cold, people know about it. It's a bigger charity now. It's mm-hmm. it's getting more established. But their program, Joe, on what they do with those little kiddos at the preschool level is so important. They are really helping those kids reach the potential they need to reach. So we have that basic need. Then we have all kinds of the wraparound or support services, like after-school programs, kids from low-income homes. It's mom and dad are working two or three jobs. They got a million balls in the air. These kids could be at the mall. No, they're at these after-school programs we help fund. They're getting tutored. They're learning how to make healthy snacks. They're getting physical activity. It's Well, you know I love it. (laughs) It's fantastic (laughs) how many kids we're able to reach and with a small amount of money. Your donation does not need to be huge. Whatever you can afford. 90% of it goes right to the front line. We're very proud of that Mm -hmm. because Chorus and the Weston pick up most of the overhead. Which is fantastic. And again, mark your calendars down December 7th, Friday, all day. It is Pledge Day 2018. Hard to believe it's a month away. Betty Jo Kaiser, thank you so much for coming in today. (laughs) My pleasure, Joe. Just want to take a moment to thank you for taking the time to download and listen to the Calgary Today podcast. Don't forget to subscribe through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. We'll chat with you soon.